Welcome to I'm Game with Fred Croner. Today I am joined by Kelly Hill, who is a former women's basketball head coach at a couple of different Division I schools. And I would guess for about the last quarter of a century now has, has been a women's basketball official, uh, just working all over the country. And then uh, her day job is as the executive director of the Champaign-Urbana Schools Foundation. Kelly, welcome. Hey, Fred, it's great to see you and hear from you again. We, we go way back to the days of uh, you covering high school sports when I was recruiting. So, wow, what a, what, a great, uh, what a great day to see you again. Well, and, you know, I'm glad you said that because that leads exactly into my very first question. And if you don't know the answer to this or don't remember that, that is totally fine because there's a little story I want to explain. Uh, but do you remember the first time that we met? Well, I believe it was when I was recruiting Becky Clayton out of Sullivan High School and following uh, following their their march to I think was maybe a couple state championships and you were covering her and I was I was watching her play in the stands hoping that she'd come come play for me at Western Illinois. Well, you're exactly right, and, and I bet you remember for, for a couple of different reasons because when when you did the home visit with her, I, I was there that day, which uh, in fact she did four home visits. And uh, you, you were one, Doug Bruno at DePaul was another. Uh, I can't remember the other two, but I was able to work in my schedule to be at three of the four. And, and I know Doug was kind of taken aback when, when he walked in and found a reporter there. He wasn't too happy about that. And, uh, but, but the family assured him they wanted me to be there and it was totally fine. Uh, but I bet another reason you would remember is as you walked in the front door of, of the Clayton's house and looked to the right into the living room was a hospital bed with, with her brother who, uh, uh, was confined uh, to, to the hospital bed the full time. So probably those couple things uh, were, were in itself unique as far as recruiting visits, right? You don't often come into a living room with somebody in a bed convalescing in any shape or form. But I do remember, you know, this is a while back, but I do remember uh, what a warm and engaging family the Claytons were and, and how uh, invested they were in helping Becky make a, a good decision. And you know, from Western Illinois to being up against DePaul at the time, um, you know, that was a formidable recruiting opponent. And, uh, you know, obviously Becky was very talented and, and uh, I'm sure there were other schools interested in her, but we were, we were very, um, we were really excited when we signed her. So I want to, I want to ask about how you feel like girls and women's basketball has changed over the years. Uh, but before I do, I, I want to tell you a little, a little story in terms of uh, explains why I was there that day. The, uh, so that would have been in either September or October of 1981 that, uh, that I met you at the Clayton's house. And the previous school year, the 1979-80 school year, um, uh, I was covering the Sullivan team. I got to, to meet and know Scott Thomas, who was the head coach at the time. And he asked me to be the summer coach in the summer of 1980. And, you know, I was never one of these reporters that second guest coaches and said, oh, I could do better than that and all that. And so I, I turned him down. I said, no, I'm, I'm not qualified for that. And he said, well, you're exactly what I want because I, he says, I don't want a parent involved because if you have parents involved in the summer, then during the school year, they feel like they have a vested interest and they can tell you and uh, what to do and what they think. And he says, this team coming up is going to be very special. And, uh, you know, I don't want anything, uh, you know, any kind of distractions or anything to mess it up. So anyway, I, I coached uh, Becky and, and Amanda Blaisbrook, who went on to play at ISU and, and that whole team in the summer. We, we played 51 games 
48 and three. And I tell everybody they would have been 51 and 0 if they had a regular coach. But uh, basically all I did, I, I filled out the starting lineups and, and I made some substitutions and that was it. And, and Scott had told me, he says, I, I don't want you calling timeouts and telling them what to do. He says, I want them to be able to think on their own because he says, there's going to be times during the school year that, that maybe we're out of timeouts or we need to save a timeout. And he said, I want them to, to be able to know what to do. So anyway, because of coaching them, I, I got to know Becky and, and Amanda exceptionally well. And at one point during that summer, Becky had said, well, I'm, I'm keeping a, a recruiting journal and, and a diary of everything that's going on. And of course, my reporter mind that that clicked in, I said, well, you know, that would be an interesting story. Would you like to share that? And she thought about it for a while and, and talked to her folks and they were good with it. So uh, I ran excerpts of her diary several different times. And then I had asked, I said, uh, you know, as you set up these home visits, is it okay if I'm there? Because I'd never been through that process. So part of it was me just wanting to learn what it was like on a recruiting visit. And another part was to add that dimension to some stories I did. And so they were very gracious and allowed me to be there. And, and so that was kind of the backstory in terms of, of why I was there. Um, so anyway, get, getting to my question now about how it's changed. Um, see, the reason Scott Thomas couldn't coach that summer is because at the time the ISSA didn't allow coaches to have any contact with their kids. They, they couldn't work with them in, in camp settings or, or anything like that. And of course, now that's changed. You've got 20 or so contact days every summer. Uh, but what are some other things that over the years you have seen in terms of, of changes in, in the game for girls and women's basketball? Well, back in those days, there was no cell phones. So let's just start with that. There was no social media. There was no Facebook. There was none of that. And so every time you wanted to talk to a kid, you either wrote them a letter or you called them on the phone and hoped that they answered. And most of them answered because they wanted to hear from a college coach, but everything was done very differently that way. We were very limited in how many times we could go watch them. We we're limited and there was no, really not a lot of film. There was, well, film was definitely different, right? So you would see, you'd get a VHS film in the mail and you'd pop it in your, and then you'd be searching for the kid you're looking for. Of course, Becky wasn't hard to find or nor Amanda. Um, but, but yeah, so the technology I would say probably is the huge, is the biggest thing. I don't know that the kids have changed a lot. Uh, I will say, um, you know, part of me getting out of coaching was in fact that the, that the kids had changed enough that uh, it had become more self-centered. It, it had become what's in this for me. Um, so it was, it was hard to build. It was hard to understand and really find those kids that really had the team understanding, the team concept. And of course, that's why you know, the Sullivan team was so attractive because they had that. And, you know, to your point um, about coaching them in the summer, whatever that looked like, basically putting the starting lineup out on the floor and letting them coach themselves. I mean, Scott was a genius, right? That was, that was probably the best thing he could have done for those kids. He really empowered them to believe in themselves, not to depend on the coaching staff and to really look inwardly at what they could do as a team. So I think, you know, those kinds of special teams, that chemistry that's built, that leadership that's built, um, I'm not saying you don't see that, but the, that's what makes a team special because it's so difficult to get attention of kids these days to get them really focused in on and making that commitment to what it takes to have a successful team. Uh, I'm not sure people have changed. I just think there's so many other distractions. There's so many other uh, opportunities for kids to be involved in things that when you really have a special team, they have bought in, they have committed, there's leadership, there's synergy. Uh, and I think you see that in any kind of activity that involves a group of people. Um, that, that, that's what makes them special. 
So talk about yourself as a coach. Were you one that when the game was going on, you were yelling at the officials and saying, boy, I can't believe you missed that call or how could you call that? Uh, so what, what were you like as a coach? Well, I was a, I was a young coach. So I came right out of college and got an assistant coaching job at Nebraska. So I was an assistant there for three years. So I was like 23 years old when the head coach left and I was given the head, the head job there. So uh, yeah, I thought I knew it all. And I thought I could influence the officials by screaming at them a lot. I thought I knew all the rules. I thought I had all the answers um, that that changes over time when you realize you don't have any of that and you don't have any of that control. I think that's one of the difficulties in coaching is a lot of a lot of coaches really want to have that control over their student athletes because there's there's so many unknowns out there. But I think um, I think I was really a player's coach. I really understood the game. I, I loved playing the game. I still have a passion for it. I mean, I've been involved in basketball since I was in high school in the in the 70s. Uh, so I coached for 12 years and I've officiated now for 30 years. I also did the color for the state tournament on TV for a couple of years, which by the way, was the hardest job of anything I did uh, to be prepared to step in on live TV and talk about teams you've never seen in your life. Um, so I've had my hand in lots of different uh, parts of it, but as a coach, um, I really, I did empathize with how hard it was for the players to um, and how important it was for them to be together, to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, and really be selfless in, uh, you know, maybe giving up a part of, uh, of something that they had an individual goal for so that the team could be successful, because we need all those different parts, and, and indeed, they're all different. You look at any successful teams, and, you know, there's different parts that are all important um, to, be, to be a part of the team. We'll talk about making the transition from, from coaching to officiating. Uh, I'm sure part of the reason to get out of coaching was it, it was even back then, it was becoming like a 24-hour-a-day job. You know, every day of the year, there were really no breaks, no downtime. So it's understandable to get out of coaching, but did you go immediately to officiating? And, and what kind of led you down that path? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I got out of coaching because I really wanted to have a family. I wanted to have more personal time to myself. Coaching is 24-7, is 365. I mean, and had, that hasn't changed. In fact, it's amped up even more. Um, so I got out of coaching so I'd have a little bit more time. However, uh, I took the high school test the, the summer that I got out of coaching, and I started officiating immediately. Um, I had two kids during that time period, and so there was some uh, times when I was not able to officiate because I was pregnant. Um, but yeah, I, I jumped right into it again, thinking that I knew it all right. I knew how to officiate. I knew what the rules were and I didn't know any of those things. So uh, it was very humbling. The first couple of camps that I went to here, went to the U of I uh, men's camp, boys camp. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I had two inner city Chicago teams and I was out there on the floor with another guy that was equally clueless and you know, there, a fight broke out and we had no control over the game. And I just thought, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I, I got some mentors. I joined a local association, met some great friends. Terry Holloman was one of those. Tim Daly, who's still officiating, uh, was one of those. Actually, you know, several, several really great guys that helped me um, kind of get started and, and step back a little and say, you know, you, you got to start in the beginning. You got to learn, got to learn the rules. You got to learn where to stand. You got to learn what you're looking for. And then there's all the other dynamics of, you know, just like any other team, the three of you out there on the floor really have to work together and cover each other's backs and help each other out and, and be on the same page is what we talk about every night in our pregame. Um, so learning those nuances and learning how to learning how to officiate instead of just knowing the rules or where to stand, um, you know, that's what comes over time. And um, 
yeah, I'm really pleased to say I'm I'm still officiating at you know 60 plus. So what what did you find coaches to be like in those early years? What were coaches getting on you, or did they understand that hey, you're kind of new to the officiating game and give you a little bit of a break? No, there's no break. Uh, you know, I, as you know, and we say this in our pregame: expect the coaches to be intense, respect their intensity, and as soon as they go over the line and say something or do something that's disrespectful, then we have a technical foul to take care of that. So. Uh, having been a coach, I understand when they're yelling and screaming and they're intense and a play doesn't go their way, that they're going to be upset about that. And we give them, the, we let, we let them be upset about that. That's part of the game. But, you know, as an official, you're stepping in and saying, you're not going to say that to me and you're not going to embarrass my partners and you're not going to humiliate another player on the other team. So we're there to kind of make sure that there's a level playing field for both teams to be successful. But I'd have to say, the coaches haven't changed much. They, they want to win. They're paid at the college level to win. Uh, and everything about their demeanor and their communication is about winning that game that night with those kids on the floor. And if you're not ready to officiate at that level and that intensity every night, whether it's a JV high school game or a, a D1 national championship, you're going to get eaten alive because you're not going to be ready. You're going to miss calls. You're going to um, you're going to be out of position. You're not going to be communicating effectively. You're going to make a mistake. And, um, you know, as we say, if we don't have a great first quarter, we've set ourselves up to be chewed on the whole rest of the game. So the goal is to really come out of the gate, have a great first quarter, have a great second, third, and fourth as well in the women's game. Um, but, you know, be prepared so that we're ready for those coaches, anticipate that they're going to be not only intense, but uh, uh, we're going to do what we can to respect them until they disrespect us. Well, after been, being an official now for so many years and, you know, working championship games and high-level D1 games, how hard is it to get, you know, like, a, a say, a weeknight game at, at a Knox College or something like that and, and you know, get ready and, and get mentally prepared to, to do a game that, you know, maybe not might not be one with, with 15,000 fans? Yeah, well, there were 100 people there last night. We didn't get going until 8 o'clock because we were the second game. The men played first. And we had a pregame that was still 45 minutes long. So we still talked in that locker room for 45 minutes about the two teams. Uh, we prepared for what we were going to do, how we were going to manage the coaches, uh, how we were going to manage players that, that maybe, you know, get a little bit of frustration out here and there. So in terms of preparation, there's no, there's no difference. Uh, you, you know, the minute you're not ready, the minute you're not prepared, um, it's a mess. And every, the, the difference is they didn't used to all be on film. They're all on film. They're all live streamed. I mean, everything that happens on the floor, somebody's watching you somewhere. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't like, well, we're the only ones that knew we made that mistake. Oh, well, there's a lot of people sitting here watching that silly game. Uh, what you think is what somebody might think is a silly game on a Tuesday night and in, in, uh, in Galesburg, Illinois, there's still plenty of people online looking at that, including our supervisors. Our supervisors don't even come to games. They just, they go online, stream it and watch it and send you notes after the game and say, Hey, in this call, I, I really think you could have been in a better position. You guys didn't communicate about that foul. And that's why that led to this. And so, you know, there, there's just a whole lot more scrutiny on what we're doing, even at the D3 level, uh, even at the junior college level, I'm working a game tonight at um, a, a school that has, that has video. So they're, they're, we're going to have replays at a, at a JUCO game. We're going to have media timeouts. That was unheard of three or four years ago. So the technology has really uh, made a difference in the accountability for the officials, but also for the coaches and the players. You know, people are seeing what coaches are doing and players are doing. 
Uh, it's not just the official's word on, hey, you wouldn't believe what this coach said. You wouldn't believe what these players did. It's all right there. So, um, you know, the transparency and the accountability is, is, uh, is there for everybody to be held to. Well, I've been retired now from the News Gazette for a few years, so I don't know how much this has changed. But at the point I'd retired, I would go to the girls' state tournament every year, and it was just amazing to me how few women officials were there at the state tournament. I, I think maybe there were a couple years there were two. I can't remember if there were ever three in one year. Um, first of all, so many girls are playing basketball. How, how come there are not more that are turning to the officiating? And, and what do you see uh, needs to happen in, in order to make that change? Yeah, Fred, that's really frustrating. Um, a, a couple things. Uh, the, the local associations are still predominantly uh, male. Um, it, you know, it's a fraternity. It's a friendship group. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes that, that's not as welcoming to women who are outsiders to that in terms of their development. Uh, I'll say I was welcomed into it and I was good enough to progress pretty quickly. Um, but truthfully, I could not get a high school schedule. I went to a college camp and got hired as a college official before I was officiating high school basketball. And I've never gone back and really done much high school basketball um, and a little bit here and there. But, uh, you know, it was a, it was a group of assigners. It was a group of um, officials that um, some embraced me and, and supported me and were, were great and wanted to be partners and, and others did not. And so you know, you can make with that what it what you want of it, but I think that's that happens in all kinds of places in our world that we're just we're exclusive. We're we're not recognizing that we need we need more um, we need more diversity. Whether it's you know uh, players that look like uh, officials that look like the players or uh, officials that look like uh, you know I just I just really it, it was frustrating because I, I I have a little story that I came out of a Parkland game one day came off the floor and we were headed back to the locker room and um this guy stopped me and said what are you doing here and i said well i just did the you know i did the women's game and this was somebody that had assigned here in the local area and it never never assigned me a game and he said well how'd you get that game i said somebody gave me a chance and uh, so somebody gave me a chance it wasn't him but somebody gave me a chance and and uh, you know i don't know if there was any respect or that he felt after seeing me do that game but I mean I was doing junior college games before anybody would hire me at the high school level. Well that's a shame no doubt about that. So as, as you do your schedule now how, how often do you work with other women officials or is it is it kind of mixed or or not? Yeah the college game is completely different. There's been a real effort to diversify the numbers of people that are that are working women's games. You know, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of training opportunities. There's a lot of camp opportunities. Many of them are run by women. And so, you know, the, I would say it's a, it's a mix of uh, men and women that, that work the women's game. And, and when people, you know, kind of complain about my, my male counterparts complain about not getting games, I'm like, hey, you can work boys high school varsity. You can work, you can work men's junior college and you can work women's. I can't work any of that. I can really just work college women because nobody's hiring me at high school and nobody um, yeah, would give me an opportunity at the college game. Um, so that has changed a little bit, but it's still, you know, the men work for the men and the women work for the women. And, you know, there's, there's a few anomalies here and there. There's some W uh, there's some NBA officials that are women. Um, there's plenty of WNBA officials that are men. Um, so really the, the, the next level becomes, are you good enough? You know, are you good enough? 
Um, not as much about, you know, who you are, what you look like. Are you good enough? Can you handle the coaches? Can you handle the game management? Can, are you a good play caller? Are you a good teammate? Um, so I think just opportunities have, have opened up a little bit more. And uh, I always encourage, you know, if, if there's any local uh, girls that want to go into officiating, I always encourage them to, to attend the local IHSA camps and become involved at the, at the, at the high school level. Uh, if, if they're interested, because it's a great part-time job. It's good money. It's a great way to stay in shape. It's a great way to stay engaged with the game. Uh, it's, it's been a lovely uh, uh, avocation for me. I just uh, can't say enough about how much fun I've And that's why I'm still doing it. I, I have great friendships. I have great relationships. And at this point, that's why you do it, right? You, I got to see, see two people tonight that I haven't seen in, in a year. And we had a great, great game together. We had a great pregame together. We caught up on each other's families. So it is a fraternity sorority feel, um, and part of why I do anything is always because of those relationships. Are there one or two games over the years that you officiated that, that really stand out, either whether it was because of the magnitude of the game or, or the people involved or anything like that? Yeah, I worked uh, the Valley Championship for a couple of years, uh, Missouri Valley Championship, and that's when Southwest Missouri was so good. I think they're called Missouri State now, and uh, Jackie Styles was a player in one of those championship games. And I just remember standing there, the, the arena was full, uh, doing the Star Spaniel banner and just kind of getting a lump in my throat, like, wow, this is what everybody wants to be. They want to be at that championship game. They want to be watching um, two of the best teams in the conference play. And you want to be that official selected to be a part of that crew, to be a part of that special experience. So um, that was that was really um, that was really exciting and, and fun and thrilling. And, um, you know, that lump in my throat luckily went away so we could do the game. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't mess it up. And um, so <laughs> you're, you're trying not to make mistakes because our goal is to, is, to, is to just get it right, right? We don't care who wins. It's just get it right. Make sure the call is right. Make sure um, it's at the right time. And um, Whatever happens after that, you know, it, that's out of our control. But that was that was a moment that was that was pretty special, yeah. Well, let's if we could switch away from basketball for a little bit and talk about uh, what are the duties of the executive director of the CU Schools Foundation. Yeah. So um, you know, when I moved here to Champaign, got out of coaching, I've worked a lot of different places. I worked at Human Kinetics. I worked at what is now Rosecrans. I worked at Habitat for Humanity. I worked for Girl Scouts. A lot of nonprofits, um, and then when this job came open, I thought, you know what, that is a dream job for me. I I love being involved with our schools. I love being involved with lifting up teachers. I come from a family of teachers. Every single person in my family was a teacher, uh, and their spouses are teachers. So uh, I know how hard that job is. Um, so I think I come from a great understanding of, of the work, um, and my job really is to raise money from our community to support unit four and 116 teachers uh, so they can do some kind of out of the box creative um, things that they've always wanted to do with their students uh, some maybe it's a maybe it's a stem experiment maybe it's they want to they want to do a special art show and that would take a little extra money maybe they want to take a group of kids on a field trip to a place they've never been uh, maybe they want to create a community garden at their school and involve other teachers in other classrooms Maybe they want to do something across the, the two districts. So um, it's really an opportunity to kind of be a relationship builder and a connector with the with our two districts and really showcase the work of our teachers by giving them grants to actually do some of these cool things. And, 
and give students a chance to to do some things that would be out of the box and out of the ordinary for them as well. Uh, the other side of what we do is we provide scholarships to uh, students that are graduating seniors. So at Urbana Central and Centennial, we have a variety of different scholarships that are, that are applied for and we review them and then award them. So close to $40,000 of, of our funding goes to those scholarships. And then we're hoping to have between 60 and $100,000 this year going back to teachers and grants in our schools. So it's a fundraising job primarily, but we also work to uh, very, very closely with both superintendents to try and help them um, in ways that might be a little bit also outside of the box. We're working with um, our middle school principals right now, trying to provide some funding to support their initiatives related to community building in their school. So we're trying to help our middle schools become stronger entities and build relationships so that when those students move on to high school, you know, there's more friendships, there's more connections, there's more empathy for one another. And, um, you know, so we're in the midst of trying to, to do lots of supporting and uh, we really appreciate the community that recognizes we're kind of in a unique role as a nonprofit. People could make donations to us and then we can turn around and, and support the efforts in our, in, our school, in our two school districts here. Well, it has to be a very uh, rewarding job, I, I would think, to be able to, to see things like that come together and, you know, the teachers be able to get some of the things that they want and, and certainly to help the students out uh, as they graduate. That has to be very rewarding. Yeah, we really want to we really want to showcase the work of teachers and and recognize them and and let them let them know that we see them. We know the value of what what they are because they influence those students that are going to be our future. And uh, if their tanks are empty or they're exhausted or burned out, and, and we've sure learned a lot through COVID here about how hard that is to sustain that kind of intensity and and focus and energy when there's so many things that are falling falling apart around us. Um, so we're, we're really, we really want to front load our teachers with uh, not only funding, but recognition and uh, making them feel like we really need them and we're here for them. Um, we, we do a big deal with the checks. We take prize, we, we become the prize patrol and take big checks to them. Uh, we, we honor teachers at the end of the year in our Shining Star Awards that are peer nominations for teachers that are just doing amazing work and really being a part of their school community. Uh, and then we have two uh, district uh, recognitions where, we, for lack of a better word, it's the Teaching Excellence Award in, in both, uh, uh, Barb Mann has won in uh, Champaign and former Superintendent Jean Amberg has funded a, a one in Urbana. And so these are really teachers that are, uh, just uh, amazing and are doing great work and we want to we want to support them with some financial uh, aid that they can use for whatever they want to so again you know we are the champions for the teachers uh, because we know they're the pipeline to helping our students uh, figure out what's next for them whether it's college or whether it's going to be a, um, a trades career they're going to go to parkland for two years and transfer to u of i or, or to a four-year school um, we're really here invested in trying to make this community um, as as uh, as invincible as possible. <laughs> well, Kelly, as we wrap up today, I want to kind of go back to, to where we started. We started talking about uh, Becky Clayton, who I, I guess I should make a note that uh, you were successful in recruiting. Uh, she wound up going to uh, to Western Illinois, at least starting at Western Illinois. And 
now, uh, all these years later, I understand you're trying to recruit her again and get her interested in becoming a, a college basketball official. Yeah, true. Uh, you know, we had lost touch, uh, but, but, but Becky's gone on, has a family and, you know, has had, has had a, a very great life. And uh, she was certainly a, a tremendous athlete. And, and when we were very excited to, to sign at Western, um, but she reached out to me, she must've found me on Facebook and reached out to me and said, just kind of randomly, hey, this is Becky. And she has a new, I don't remember what her, what her new married name is, but this is Becky Clayton. Um, I'm wondering what it takes to be an official. I heard you're officiating. And I'm like, oh my God, small world. What a great question. I went into, you know, on and on and on about what she should do and when she should call me and let's get together for lunch. And uh, we have not yet done that, but I think Becky would be a great official and she knows the game and she has passion for the game. And uh, I would love to be a mentor for her and help her, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's quite a bit younger than me, so she's got more time in it. But uh, it's again, it's a great avocation. It's a great way to stay involved in, in the game that she loves. And I would, I would, I would love to have, have her uh, reach back out and, and let me help her get connected to some people that can help her. All right. Well, Kelly, I sure appreciate your time. Uh, we've been talking today with Kelly Hill, a former women's uh, basketball coach at, uh, at both Nebraska and Western Illinois, and uh, more recently now a, a college official for, I guess she said, 30 years going on. That's quite a tenure uh, in itself. And then uh, also the executive director of the CU Schools Foundation. So, uh, Kelly, again, thank you for being my guest today. Sure appreciate it. Hey, it's great to reconnect with you, Fred, and uh, lo loved your writing in the News Gazette. And one small little thing, I don't know if you knew, Bob Osmussen was, this, was the uh, editor at the University of Nebraska sports paper when I coached at Nebraska. And then he moved here and I moved here. So small world. Well, and, and what, what other small connection that you might uh, know, there, there was a person I believe would have been at Nebraska at the time, uh, maybe for the newspaper, Mike Babcock. Do you remember Mike? Oh my gosh, yeah. He was a beat writer then, I think. Well, my, Mike and I got our start in newspapers right here in Champaign, Illinois. For, it was a two-newspaper town in 1974, 1975, 76. We both worked for the Champaign-Urbana Morning Courier. So, uh, wow, I, small world. Yeah, I got to know Mike then. And uh, then he later wrote a book about Bob Devaney, which he sent me a copy and, and autographed that. So I, uh, I've got that in my, in my collection here. Yeah, Bob was the athletic director when I first started there. And of course... Tom took over, but uh, yeah, it's a small world. Sports is a small world, and it's a it's a great place to be, isn't it, Fred? Absolutely. Well, again, Kelly, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll be in touch again, I'm sure. Sounds good.